Welcome to another edition of Mr. Nice Guy. I'm Ben Slowey, and I am joined today by uh, the founder and uh, CEO of Cream City Conservation, an, an organization that is Milwaukee-based uh, that aims to uh, promote diversity and representation in uh, urban green spaces and community environmental sustainability. Uh, she has been uh, in uh, that field for a very long time, and I'm excited to talk to her about her passions and why she does what she does. Uh, she's currently in Miami right now, so I appreciate uh, her uh, joining me from across the country here. So uh, thank you very much, August Ball, for joining me today. Very happy to be here, and no problem at all, even though I'm, I'm in Miami, still working, just uh, needed warmer weather. <laughs> For sure. Oh, yeah. But it's how is it out there right now? It's beautiful. I'm not going to lie. It's 80 something degrees. I don't even really check the temperature when I'm out here. I just know it's going to be warm. <laughs> Isn't that nice when you don't have to check the temperature? Um, unlike here where you never know what you're going to get. Very true. Very true. Yeah, we we had a crew uh, that was working uh, I believe at the lakefront, um, removing some invasive species, and like it started like snowing, <laughs> like the last week or so, I believe. So yeah, it's an interesting. Milwaukee definitely though has its pros though. I mean, uh, I, there's a reason why why many of us live there, uh, despite our cold winters. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's still um, a really awesome melting pot of culture and art and great people. Uh, so it keeps us here, but uh, Florida would be really nice right now. It's only about 50 degrees today here in Milwaukee. So, yeah. okay, we're yeah. a couple weeks away. We're, we're doing okay. Um, so what brings you out to Miami uh, this time? Uh, just friends. I, my girlfriend just bought a, a condo out here. And so also because she needed a space to escape uh, <laughs> the cold. We've both been um, attempting to, uh, you know, just, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, not escape, but uh, keep the seasonal depression at bay. <laughs> and with the year, well, the past two years that we've had, uh, you know, I think now more than ever, self-care is so critical, especially when you're doing social impact work. And, um, you know, there are, there are no medals for martyrdom. <laughs> And we don't we don't really serve others when we are drained. So uh, I know I do my best work when I'm feeling restored and being in the hot sun. I, I grew up in the Philippines, so I'm this is the temperature I'm like my body is like accustomed to, even though I've lived in Milwaukee since the early 2000s. Um, and that will be home probably forever. But uh, yeah, can't can't change your genetics. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I get that for sure. Like. Yeah, I, being as I've been in the Midwest, like annual circadian rhythms. But if you, yeah, if you grew up in a much more like tropical or otherwise warm uh, climate, then, you know, you are wired to uh, thrive under that. Um, so, yeah, I, I totally get that. I, I don't know, like maybe eventually I'll warm, move somewhere warmer, but at the same time, like, Every every region comes with its, uh, you know, comes with different. Absolutely, issues. I mean, I love having Milwaukee as a home base, right? I mean, I 
um, I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm in a very privileged position to, you know, to, to not worry so much about housing, which is not something that everyone in Milwaukee doesn't have to worry about. Um, but for me, the cost of living is very accessible. Um, I also don't have a lot of expenses other than food and, <laughs> and travel. Um, you know, I don't have any children or, um, you know, animals to <laughs> you know, care for. Um, so I get to be selfish in that way. But I, I love having Milwaukee as a home base. It is, I, I, I that is, that is, a, despite the cold sometimes, it is a place that feels like home. I, I kind of love actually like going to the grocery store and like running into people. It's like a little reunion. And, and I know some people hate that about small towns, but I love that. I feel like when I go to bigger places, while it is, it is exciting, there is something to be said about sense of community and, and living in a place that, has all the creature comforts of a bigger city. I mean, maybe not every single last creature comfort, um, but I, I do feel like it's, like you said, it's a very fair trade-off um, and it's a good hub to, you can easily get anywhere in the world from Milwaukee. <laughs> so. That's true. Yeah, it still has all the merits of the metropolitan life, but it still kind of has like, it's, almost, it's a very localized vibe. And it's what I really appreciate about it too. Uh, it's really accessible and easy to get to know people here. Um, yeah, uh, so August, what we talk about on Mr. Nice Guy, we talk love and fear, passion and creativity. And yeah, we've been connected on social media for a little while now, um, but, and um, I think I really started like notice, noticing your work uh, from uh, watching your travels in the last year, which, uh, you know, definitely during quarantine just made me yearn for like when uh, you can see different parts of the world or even just parts of different parts of the country uh, one day. Um, but but it's inspiring because I hope to be able to work on the road and travel. And uh, yeah, like my goal is to become self-employed and work virtually one day um, doing uh, music, uh, like music journalism and press releases. And that's kind of my thing. But watching what you do is is sort of like it helps fuel that uh, that ambition. Uh, so I really appreciate that about you. That's so exciting to hear. You know, I, so I I think that that's one of the things about. So I'm on the cusp of like millennial and what is it Gen is it Gen X? Gen X, yeah. Okay, so uh, for I I because I grew up traveling a lot. Um, I've always kind of considered myself a global denizen. And I feel like the one area I think we could definitely do better in as far as Milwaukeeans is really get people to travel abroad. Um, I, I mean, a lot of, and this is, this is not just a Milwaukee issue, a lot of smaller cities have this thing where folks very rarely actually leave their, their, their region, let alone the country. Um, and, I just think it does so much for our sense of awareness, our sense of like innovation and creativity, um, but also empathy and compassion to to be able to explore the world. And what I think is also interesting is that people seem to think that travel is the super expensive thing. And don't get me wrong, there's a whole lot of privilege that comes with having a blue passport. <laughs> I recognize that. Um, there's also, I mean, I'm, I'm an enabled bodied woman. Um, so, so, so I have definitely some, some access points that are a bit easier for me to navigate than others. 
But in terms of a price point, I, I, and I don't say this braggingly, but my, my first trip to, was it Spain? I got a first class ticket for $250 from Chicago to, what was it, Madrid? I think it was Madrid. Um, you know, once you're there, it's like $37 from Barcelona to Paris. Or, so I feel like, so, and, and it's, it cost me more to fly to Minnesota, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Sure. So I just, I think that for folks who are more in that middle range income, travel is a lot more accessible than I think they realize. Um, I also think that, so for me, I was very fortunate to be able to have access to the vaccine fairly early because I also translate sometimes for my girlfriend who runs a, um, a translation business. So again, it's also like things fall in line too. Um, I do try to be safe even in this moment. Um, and everyone has to make decisions for themselves on what's the best you know, option. I, I feel really fortunate I'm, I've made it this far into the pandemic without <laughs> contracting COVID-19. Um, but I think, and there are some folks who did everything they were supposed to and still <laughs> ended up getting sick, which is really frustrating. Um, but I know for me, living alone um, and staying put for that long was a question between my own mental health and sanity, especially navigating what was happening in the early 2020s uh, or 2020. Um, there was just like this like influx of folks wanting to me to like review their diversity statements and what do you think about this and and I noticed my colleagues who do similar work in the anti-oppression space had their auto responders on like we're not even going to engage with you like we get that you think this is urgent and it is but it's been urgent <laughs> you know um, so it, it, I found myself kind of struggling a bit attempting to decipher where my services would best be utilized and deciphering who's doing this from a performative standpoint and who is actually really interested in doing the work. And eventually that reveals itself anyways, but there's a lot of like cognitive load that comes with this work, um, especially because it is multi-pronged in terms of like doing consulting work with environmental industries and, and then also working with people and connecting folks who have been historically marginalized and excluded from the land, making sure that they are okay and that they have what they need. It's, I love this work, don't get me wrong, it, but it does, it, it does take a toll. <laughs> um, and so this is, for me, travel is the outlet to remind myself that there's a big world out there, that I'm not the only one working on this. Um, and that progress is happening, even though it's not as fast as I would like it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's, it, it helps me keep things in perspective. Totally, yeah, and I, yeah, I respect that a lot. Um, it it humbles you because you you're regularly taken out of your insular perspective and understanding like our our worlds and our our uh, philosophies about life and and justice and things like that are all shaped by exposure and just what we are what we are educated about what we are exposed to when you're you know when there's different like implications or or conditions that you know make it hard for you to either like 
voluntary or involuntarily like break out of that like bubble of like what your world looks like it can you know it can give you kind of just a narrow understanding of the world and uh, that that kind of factors in the the conversation about what your intention is with traveling like do you want to travel because you genuinely do want to understand like whether it's from like because you do want to like use your place of privilege or use your um, uh, skill sets or knowledge to, to make the world a better place or are you going out there because you just you know for inherent for entirely selfish reasons and you just want to like you know have a cute vacation <laughs> um and it, it's like this and there's nothing wrong with wanting to treat yourself and having a vacation and it just you know like losing yourself in a, in a new place but i think with that you have to also tread with the the uh mentality that you are entering a space that is not yours that very likely could have been colonized enter it like with respect and humility and empathy rather than like you know uh centering yourself um that's a big thing with like yeah just like especially like white travel vloggers and like social media influencers you know like i don't know if you follow that account influencers in the wild but it's it's, it's yeah <laughs> yeah yeah like it's stuff like that where it's like you know you're 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 kind of like showboating what you're able to do because of your privilege without mm -hmm. like you know actively trying to participate in like the enrichment of culture and uh Absolutely. yeah and, yeah and or even doing any research before you go to the country right like i have i know people who hate going to paris for example because they think people there are rude and then i really when you when you kind of unpack that further and ask questions you find out they didn't bother to even learn any survival french before going they're walking up to people in France, just speaking right. English. Well, naturally, right? Like right. I, most of the people I know who have this perspective of like, America is the greatest country in, on the planet. When you ask them like, where else have you been? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, yes, I think America's great too. I don't, I don't know if I would say it's the greatest. <laughs> it's, it's cool. Um, most of them have not left the country. And if they have, they've gone to like an all-inclusive resort somewhere in Mexico, which is not Mexico. Um, to your point, um, when I, so for example, when I travel to places like Cuba, I intentionally patron places like uh, Casa Particulares that are basically like Airbnbs that are ran by black Cubans. I try to go to restaurants that are ran by black Cubans. Specifically because, and it, when you go to Cuba, Cubans will tell you, oh, we have no racism here, which that's a whole nother conversation for another day. Um, people's understanding of what racism is. But a lot of folks don't realize that, you know, when, when, when Castro took over, many of the white Cubans were able to, to come to places like Florida, right? And they can send money back home to their family members there. Black Cubans, many of them didn't have that same opportunity. And so they don't have the same safety net that a lot of white Cubans have. Um, very similar thing with Mexico too. You turn on, you know, a Mexican telenove uh, telenovela and you're like, interesting. You see certain images 
on the screen, but then you go to Mexico and you're like, wow, I, none of these people are represented, <laughs> uh, you know, in these telenovelas. None of these people are on billboards. Uh, and you're like, huh, these, this is what Mexicans actually look like. You know, so, I mean, I'm saying this very smugly, but there's some, there is something to be said about doing a little bit of homework, but also rec to me that one of the things I really value about travel is that it helps, I think, in a little ways to, to check my own lens of, of which I am experiencing a place. Exactly, yeah. Right? Um, so, for example, when I went to Morocco, now I am very much so a feminist, <laughs> um, and I believe women should wear, wear whatever the heck they want to wear. <laughs> Um, however, when I went to Morocco, I intentionally dressed a particular way because I wanted to be mindful and respectful of the culture, even though many people there said, no, you can wear whatever you want. For me, one, like I try not to stand out too much and draw too much attention to myself when I'm traveling. One of the nice things about being mixed race is that I can oftentimes be a little racially ambiguous. And if I just shut up or if I, you know, if I do speak the language of the particular area, it's a bit easier to, to meld in. Um, but I noticed that my experience in, in Morocco, for example, was so much richer. I got invited into people's homes, um, you know, from some of the, uh, I, I, I hand-selected some, some tour experiences that were done actually by, lo you know, local people that wasn't like some corporation in Europe that was, you know, um, paying people nothing. So, so doing our own research too about like um, sustainable travel, um, equitable travel companies, is really important. Um, but I think because of that, that when you immerse yourself and really question like, where am I staying? Where, where are the, where's the money that I'm spending in this country actually going? Is it going to the people or is it going to? Is it going to like people that like, for example, like white people that decided to come here and, and like, you know, yeah. start like a, you know, come to profit off the culture, you know, like mm -hmm. I see that even in Milwaukee, like uh like when we're talking about patronizing authentic businesses that are owned and run by folks actually from that culture mm -hmm. um yeah like yeah. i think that what you're like what you're saying is is about like doing your research doing your homework a little bit before you travel and because that is so crucial because it makes you adaptable like mm -hmm. It's, I feel like that's a very American thing to expect you to be like adapted to when really you're the one who should be adapting to wherever you're going. Exactly. You know, that doesn't seem like, uh, it seems like common sense, you know, when you break out of like that America's, the, that American exceptionalism. Um, and it's like some people, sure, might be empathetic to the fact that you're an American and you don't know what you're doing, but others are going to be like, who the fuck does this guy think he is you know like so yeah, yeah. I, I think that mm -hmm. you know we we can't just expect to just be catered to you know mm -hmm. we you have to understand that like we're there we're the guests we're mm -hmm. the guests in someone else's house yeah yeah uh, and i there's also one another reason why i love to travel so much is to dispel some myths right like for example when i what i and i do tend to travel alone a lot too which that comes with its own, uh, you know, aspects of, you know, safety and being smart about how you travel. I do stay in a lot of hostels when that's a possibility. Um, I, I, I've had the pleasure of, you know, just cultivating so many friendships internationally that, you know, I have places to stay, you know, at different countries. 
Um, so again, the more you travel away, obviously we know the smaller the world gets in the best ways. Yeah. And also I would say um, this, this perception of like crime also, right? Like, so I, I'll tell people I'm going to Mexico or I'm going to Colombia and people are like, oh, the crime rate, right? And I'm like, do you know what the crime rate is? Like, it's actually not, it's actually less than Milwaukee. <laughs> you know? Like, but people have very archaic perspectives. And I'm not saying that there's, there's risk wherever you go for multiple things. Um, but I think that a lot of folks have, have severely outdated ideas about other countries. Um, people are still surprised that countries in Africa have metropolitans and, you know, they, they show up expecting to see, you know, lions and giraffes and, you're like, oh, wow, it's a city. Like, yeah, Ghana's got a city. <laughs> Can yeah. you too? Like, <laughs> um, yeah, so, but we, I mean, so I'm a sociologist by training. And so one of the things that used to really kind of like irked me a bit when in undergrad was this notion of like, oh, yeah, I'm going to go abroad and study, you know, I don't know, the sex life of the tipsy fly in, you know, Austria or whatever, and, and <laughs> or, you know, Cambodia. And, and you realize as they're going, you, like, you haven't even left the ground yet. And already you're, you're preparing to go and evaluate a whole nother country, a whole nother landscape with your limited lens. Um, right. I, and again, I'm not trying to, you know, like talk smack about America. I, I, it's one of the things I do again, it's oftentimes it's not even that one is better or, or worse. It's just different. And I think if we can just accept that, like for a lot of intents and purposes, our countries are just different in the same breath. So I think it, it behooves us to also acknowledge that by sheer dumb luck, like some of us are, were born on a plot of land where we can go anywhere, right? This is, as long as we can afford the ticket, right? We can show up with our backpack and, and, and have a great time. Um, whereas other folks, based on the plot of dirt that's sticking out of the ocean where they happen to have been born, that will never be an option, right? Yes. And if that doesn't make you infuriated, like I, then I don't I don't even I mean there's a lot there are lots of things that make me infuriated by trying to operate from a place of joy <laughs> and a place of like wonder and um, just excitement for what could be and what's possible but but I am human and there are days where I'm just like come on humanity like why are we like this <laughs> you know right. um, yeah I think it's yeah exactly like we do have some you know freedoms out here in america that somebody drew on a map and was like here this one special this one not special <laughs> right like and also like you mentioned the colonization aspect too i mean one of the main reasons i was drawn to working in this dual space of environmentalism and 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 anti-oppression and education is that i realized that many people and i'll just speak for 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 white I'll, I'll speak to white americans in general i noticed that most a lot of what not most i should say a lot of the white americans i come in contact with have some very very harsh views and perspectives and very concrete perspectives and views and opinions about topics that they're not actually that literate on and the scary thing is that they think they're literate in them. 
um, if you ask the average American, like when was it decided that if you were born in America, you were an American citizen, they might say, well, that was always the case. That was with the constitution. It's like, mm, no, actually not. It wasn't until the protest against the Chinese Exclusion Act that that actually became a thing, right? So, I, and I don't say this from a, from a perspective of, um, oh, listen to me, I'm so smart. Like, I'm no smarter than anybody. I, I like to read a lot. Some of it's garbage, some of it's helpful. <laughs> That's kind of the deal, right? You got to like sift through, you know, the bathwater, you get the baby in a way. Um, that's a terrible analogy. But <laughs> I know what you mean, yeah. <laughs> but I, you know, what I realized is that we're all indoctrinated into, if we, so I went to school abroad. Um, I'm not Filipino, but as I mentioned, I grew up there. I, I, my family moved there when I was four years old. I, I come from a long line of, you know, travelers and, and expats, if you will. Um, and every time I am traveling alone and I'm, I can't find my Airbnb or the hostel or I lost some money or I can't find my backpack. Anytime something goes wrong when I travel, I remind myself that like I come from the stock of women who used to travel to like Ecuador, backpacking, no credit cards, no cell phone, no internet to like Google the closest. Yeah. So then I'm like, August, chill out, <laughs> like reel it in, like sit your little privilege behind down and like <laughs> take a deep breath, drink some water, change your socks. It'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, I used to go completely on instinct. Like I'm going to go to this place and I don't have, yeah, you don't have a, there's, there's no GPS, you right. know, right. <laughs> yeah. Cell phone. Uh, you could call someone if you're lost or something like that. Right. Like, yeah. 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 People, and like, made it work. Uh, right. Yeah before like for sure yeah and what i was going to say in regards to you know like the the knowledge is that you know so so even though i i spent most of my young young my childhood and my teenage years uh, in southeast asia i i i hated it at the time but i loved the fact that my father made sure he used to ship us boxes of books and like national geographic which they also have their own issues <laughs> too but you know, again, just having family members who thought it was important for me to be exposed to information that was beyond what was just in my peripheral access Wealth point. of knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because, you know, if, if you're raised in the United States, more than likely you are indoctrinated into the same system, right? Like we, we don't realize, you know, mapping, for example, like we don't realize that South America, like, is actually, what is it, 18 times bigger than Alaska or something? I'm making up this number, but it's substantially larger than Canada, than Alaska. But because of how maps are drawn, of course, we have this inflated sense of importance, you know, here in North America. There, there's just a lot to unpack with that. And so many of us are just navigating life, thinking we have all the information. And, and I think that people should be more upset <laughs> that that they're, they're, they don't have the information that they deserve to have. And what I will say in regards to this, this shift that, I've, that I think a lot of us are seeing in this moment, I don't know if it will last, but is that people are actually questioning, well, what else don't I know? What, what other perspectives or mindsets have I been like holding that have been hindering my growth, that have been hindering progress in terms of equity, right? So I tell people all the time, Nobody's more tired of talking about race and racism than people who are racialized and experiencing racism. <laughs> like I have other interests, <laughs> clearly, right? right, right yeah. 
so so when people are like oh why is everything about race it's like well let's talk about the construction of race and racism because that's literally right. the foundation right. <laughs> for Don't all forms of oppression right like they shouldn't be mad at the people who are like of color to talk about race they should be mad at the people that made race a thing in the first place right you yeah know? Like, yeah and yeah like <clears throat> absolutely the how we became stratified and put into classes as people mm -hmm. uh from the dawn of time like yeah. be mad at that right yeah, yeah. be mad at the, the at the um the virginia assembly which was once known as the house of burgesses that created the concept of the white man and assigned various privileges to it right, right. this was yes. in what late 1600s yeah. so you know people forget sometimes that not everybody who's white now was considered white at that time and and i think also this there's a notion there's a misconception that racism only serves to harm people of color and privilege white people and i would argue that it also harms white people too because imagine the 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 cultural and ethnic identity that so many uh polish irish scottish yugoslavian greeks italian imagine the identity that had to be left behind in you know and 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 disregarded in order to be usurped into this bucket of whiteness yeah right yeah. and and oneness and, and solidarity in whiteness right i mean there's a re i mean wisconsin has the, one of the largest german populations right but most people in milwaukee don't speak german even though they're not that far removed from a family member, for example, right? That's from Germany or, or, or you know, so I, I think that there, there merits a conversation about that as well. Like how, how does the system of racism also harm white people? Totally, yeah, like because there are, I think that the problem is, yeah, this, this sort of like umbrella idea of whiteness has, has yeah, it has um, gripped people that are white um, of like what their actual, like, you know, cultural ethnic heritage really is. Mm -hmm. Like, like you said, Irish or mm -hmm. German, French, yeah. Swedish, Norwegian, mm -hmm. you know, uh, I'm 51% uh, Ashkenazi Jew. Like, okay. yeah, <laughs> um, most people don't guess yeah. that because you know, I'm red hair and everything, but yeah, I'm very Jewish. Hey, half my family's Jewish, so my, my I, I, yeah. but, I'm sure you've probably seen my story, but yeah, so it's, which is a whole nother aspect, right? Like th that notion of even the, the concept of white supremacy culture, you know, Jews also weren't like, included yeah, in that, right? <laughs> right? and I often will say one thing that one of my cousins told me that, you know, the interesting thing about, and actually I had a former boss who's Jewish who also said this too, was that that's the interesting thing about being Jewish. Like you're white until you're not. <laughs> yeah, and until you're not, until the, the moment comes, right, where things are getting a little sticky. Um, but we've seen this happen with with Middle Easterners, you know, folks of Middle Eastern descent, folks who are Italian. Like, um, there's even for folks who are, you know, Latinx, right, where like they're on their because race we made it up, right? Like their birth certificate might say white, but it's like that's also an interesting phenomenon too where are, are you white or are you a person of color and um and i think people should be able to identify however they want to um and it's but even with that right we how do we have how do we even combat an issue like racism if we can't even be on the same page about what it is and how it functions yeah. right like if we don't even understand the creation like there are still people who think it's like 
formally educated folks right, who genuinely believe that race is a biological truth. Like they, they truly believe that because that's what they were taught. So it's not that they're not smart, it's that they're just going off of, they had an educator who told them this is the case. <laughs> Why would they question it? There are a lot of things my history teachers taught me that I'm like, oh, so Washington didn't have wooden teeth. It was teeth from slaves. Okay, that checks out. Interesting. Wonder why they told me otherwise. <laughs> yes. you know? Or there's there's not like a, a, a universally agreed upon like consensus about what race is like, you know, relative to um, like things like ethnicity. That's yeah. Like, and that's something I don't even fully understand myself. Mm -hmm. I mean, I took yeah. like, um, I'm sure you're a lot more, I mean, you definitely are more educated about this because you said you are a sociologist. So you, you know, you, you studied some of these things and I mean, I do, I, societies do what they do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, well, the question that's always asked. Yeah. yeah. But it's like, yeah, like, um, that is, you know, you brought up the, 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 uh, the whole thing about Jews. There's a whole controversy of like, are Jews a race or not? Well, there's also, you know, Jew being Jewish is also a religion, and there are Jews of color, there are black mm -hmm. Jews, there are brown Jews, there are many variations of Asian Jews, you know, like there's, this is exactly yeah. why we need this kind of um, education um, mm -hmm. that doesn't, isn't so, uh, so centered on American revisionism. And yes, sure, like, it's important to understand, like, the history of our country, but also the history of our country before it was a country. Like sociology should be a lot more mandated. And, mm -hmm. and the same way that LGBTQ plus uh, studies should be, uh, yeah. you know, institution, mm -hmm. institutional. Uh, yeah, we can't even agree on what gender is, right? I mean, like I, we, yeah. we know, but like the, the general population, it's yeah. still a thing that like makes us itchy to talk about. And like, why is that? And then of course, if you, you give someone the gift of information, like, oh, actually, you know, that's not correct. Now it's like, oh, me, I'm, you know, this, I, I love this, this concept of, of being a good person, being like, you know, likened to maintaining hygiene, right? Where like, you, you don't become a good person because you, you watched one film about X or you, you picked up this book or you said hi to, you know, your neighbor uh, who's a different race than you, right? Like, like, being a good person is like brushing your teeth every day. It's a practice. And sometimes that means we're going to mess up. But that doesn't mean we are bad. And like, that's now our label. Like, part of growth is making mistakes. And sometimes that means misgendering. Sometimes that means using the wrong, you know, term to, you know, not knowing if you can refer to somebody as, as their race or I, I, I think, and I would say too, we would be so much further, I think, as a society, as far as America goes, North America, if we like eliminated this kind of notion that this kind of self-righteousness that like no one can correct me if I make a mistake and no one can actually say that, oh, like what I said actually has some racist connotations or some sexist connotations or ableist connotations or whatever it might be. Because if, if I dare make a mistake, then that means I am wrong. And to actually be like, wow, someone's offering me this gift um, of information maybe I shouldn't make it such a living hell for them to give me feedback, <laughs> which is another reason why a lot of people of color are like, oh, like, oh my gosh, we're going to talk about race. We're going to talk about oppression. Like, I don't want to sit here in this workshop with Todd, who's looking at this abstractly 
and like arguing against my like right to exist while I'm here living through it. Right. So, and Todd doesn't know any better. (laughs) Like, because Todd doesn't have to know any better. It also also enters the the conversation about accountability too. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, why, you know, people are always in such a, you know, up in arms about cancel culture and how they think it's such a bigger, they make, bigger deal about cancel culture than they do about actual right. you know, abusive <laughs> people who like have really really hurt people um and uh, it's like you know cancel culture wouldn't even be a thing if people just held themselves accountable mm-hmm. to be better people right. um which which is as you mentioned um it is in you know obviously people have are at varying degrees and levels of that, but it's but it is uh, an everlasting process. Yeah. You'll be doing it to the day you die. So, I really appreciate this conversation. I we could talk about this for hours, but I want to ask a little bit more about you. So yeah, sure. <laughs> so, yeah, so August for one. So you said um, so you said you actually moved to the Philippines when you were four. Uh, so where where did where were you born? I was born in Racine, Wisconsin. Oh, okay. Yeah. Nice. Right yeah. down the road. Yeah, uh, right down the road. Yeah. My, cool. my dad, my parents, my mom and my birth mom, my, sorry, my dad and my birth mom were from Madison. Um, my dad actually was born in Memphis, Tennessee and was, was abandoned as a baby and was actually adopted by a Jewish couple. And wow. that's how we ended up in Madison. Uh, so my grandfather survived Buchenwald and um, the story with my, I mean, my grandparents passed away when I was maybe two and a half years old. So I don't have many memories from that. Most of, sometimes I don't know if it's a memory I have or a memory someone's like yeah. spoken to me. Um, but my dad used to tell the story of, you know, going to school in Madison and, you know, being, being picked on for being, you know, black and also just the, the challenges of navigating, um, you know, like, navigating the Jewish spaces as a black boy at the time and how and to this day that a lot of you know Jews of color experience too which is a whole nother thing to unpack but he he would share stories about how my grandfather would sit him on his knee and say you know son you they just want to keep ignorant me they want to kill you know um although I will say I think folks will probably argue today about me (laughs) <laughs> the, whoever they, they is, right, the, the powers that be want to, you know, kill black people too. But um, I, I don't know. I think that the, that plethora of coming from a, you know, a, a dad who was, you know, adopted and, you know, black father was adopted by a Jewish couple to then having a, a birth mom, you know, who was disturbing in Greek and also, you know, kind of an, an abandoned, um, person you know as a teenager yeah there's a lot I think everyone has a story but I don't think I realized how much various pieces of my life played into the work I do now I never would have ever in life thought I'd be one self-employed because I've watched everyone in my family who is self-employed go through it and while they love it like as an outsider looking in I was like I never want to do that <laughs> like I want to be done at the end of the day but we make our plans and the universe laughs um so yeah, so my, my birth mom uh, was killed when I was uh, four years old and um, my parents were separated at the time. And so um, there's a lot that happened in between that, but basically my father felt it would be best 
for us to go and live in the Philippines so that we would have some chance at having a, you know, semi-normal upbringing um, and good childhood, which I had an amazing childhood because of that. So that's where the Filipino, uh, my dad remarried a Filipina years later, and that's, that's our ties to the Philippines. Cool. Uh, well, uh, have you been there since you uh, moved back? Yeah, so I used to go every few years. The last time I went there was in 09. I haven't gone back to the Philippines uh, since then for two reasons. One is that customarily when you I, when you go to the Philippines, you know, because you know, a lot of times like my family there doesn't have a whole lot. And so there's an unspoken expectation that you're gonna bring things, right? So it's like a bunch of boxes, like and not expensive things, but you know, like just regular toiletries and, you know, shoes. Um, that's nothing expensive, but so when I travel, I can travel very light. <laughs> like at most, it's a carry-on, if that. Normally, it's just a backpack. <laughs> and so for me, the thought of like getting all that stuff together for my 30-plus cousins and like going to all the different barrios and like that just seems overwhelming to me. And there's no way I could go anywhere near Southeast Asia without making a stopover. So hence, I haven't gone back to Southeast Asia since '09. Um, but then, yeah, there's there's also just that, yeah, the notion of like, I like to go to new places though too. Um, and then also uh, the, <laughs> the current president there is an interesting individual. Um, oh yes, I've, I've heard, <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Duarte, yeah. So at any time there's, there's, an, there's an, uh, an allowed practice of just vigilante, you know, killing of people based on drug usage or selling. I'm like, ah, <laughs> I don't know if, if that's sanctioned by the government. I don't know if I want to go visit just yet. And, and my brother lives there currently. Um, so I, I'm not to say that it's 100% unsafe. It's just, it's a big world out there. And I, I'd, I'd like to see as much of it as I can before my time on this blue ball is over. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. 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 I, I hear that. Um, yeah. And so, uh what i guess kind of got you interested in uh, like conservation and environmentalism like where did your where did your passion yeah. for that really kind of uh come from so so you know that's something that's kind of interesting because most people think well one people are often surprised when i tell them i, I do eat meat <laughs> um not every day but i do um and the things that drew me to environmentalism are not the typical things like i I care about the ice caps, I care about the polar bears, I care about people more. And so I know I'm gonna offend some of my like vegan friends by you know, placing humanity above animals and that whole hierarchy system. But um, yeah, for me, the work is about people. And I didn't realize that how I was raised on a farm in the Philippines was like sustainability. I didn't realize like installing water encapsulate systems and you know, rotating crops or, you know, using organic fertilizers. Like, like I didn't, I didn't know that was sustainable. That was just a way of living. Um, but then when I started to get into youth work, so I always thought I was going to go into foreign service. And so my plan was actually to finish college here in the States, you know, take the foreign service exam and then head back to Southeast Asia. And then I realized, well, that, being a consulate is basically just a glorified passport stamper or someone who helps, you know, American citizens when they get in trouble. <laughs> and that didn't seem as sexy as I thought it was going to be. 
And then I also realized the additional disparity that people of color endure with regards to environmental injustices. Like realizing that like 71% of people who look like me in America are breathing polluted air. Realizing that like people of color are exposed to more pollution than they cause and, and white people are exposed to less, on average, less pollution than they cause as a collective. Like, but then also, real, so I'm also one of those people that's like, I'm never going to shame somebody for like using a plastic bag at a grocery store. Like I'm more concerned about like, you know, like we energy is dumping, you know, mercury into our water. <laughs> like I, I'm more concerned about what's ExxonMobil doing. Yeah. How so many people are drinking lead tainted water in Milwaukee. Right. And all of the, 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 you know, snowball effect that that has, right, on your development, on your health. And then you see that producing in, you know, behavioral concerns and, yeah, in school systems and just, yeah, just seeing the domino effect of these things. That's what got me frustrated. Um, and also just realizing as somebody, you know, who by accident started working with teenagers through um, a project with AmeriCorps, I never thought I would love, I didn't realize I loved working with teens so much. Um, but uh, also realizing the shift that happens to, I mean, I'm sure it happens to us as adults too, but the shift that happens to young people when they are in nature, when you get them away from this concrete jungle that we're not really designed to function in for long periods of time. <laughs> um, and seeing the, the positive impacts on their behavior, on their sense of self, on like seeing them have some pride in what they're creating um, is, yeah, it's just so cool. So it was more so the people, it was also the connection to, to I did some research on um, like risky behaviors in teens as it relates to lack of exposure to nature. Yeah. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with the, the book, Last Child in the Woods. Um, which again, all of these things are not, they're never going to be perfect, right? There's, there's, I'm sure someone's going to call in and be like, man, here's the problem with that piece of literature. I'm sure there is. <laughs> However, again, baby, keeping the baby <laughs> in the bathwater. Um, yeah, so, so that was the draw for me was being able to work with young people and, and empower them rather than like focus from a place of control. Because I, I noticed that a lot of entities that work with children, with teenagers, school systems, right? The priority is always on how can we gain compliance? How can we, and don't get me wrong, I've fallen guilty to this too. And, and by the grace of feedback from teens in my program, I've, I've, you know, when you know better, you do better. But I realized like, yeah, what, how often are we focusing on empowerment, on, right. on dignity? Positive um, reinforcement. Yeah, self-actualization. Like how, are we supporting that? Are we supporting their own critical thinking? Or are we just like, no, compliance? <laughs> you know? like, which is kind of what we do with nature too, right? Like we're like, yes, that, that stream, we need, to, we need to cement that channel <laughs> because we want it linear, right? Like we do that with our children. We do that with people. Like, oh, you, you're out of line. Beard's too long. Oh, sorry. <laughs> it goes back I'm, to... Well, we were talking about Americans that just expect the world to just be molded to their liking, you know, when they travel different places, you know, and the other side, whatever, however it looks like is negligible. Um, and that, yeah, like that, that applies to how a lot of kids are treated, you know, um, where it is the super like, you know, law and order, like authoritarian environment. It's like, 
you know, it, it doesn't factor for like what the kid might be going through um, as a result of like all of this pressure, not only in the classroom, but outside of it too. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, with, with my staff, we talk about the difference in being a leader and being a boss, right? Yeah. Like, like anybody can be a supervisor, right? And you can, you can drive people, but like, what are you actually doing to motivate to, how are you fostering a collective sense of accountability, right? A collective, like I would rather, so, so the interesting thing about, I, I joke about being raised a cashew where I was, you know, I, the Philippines is, is predominantly Roman Catholic, but there, there is also um, a subsect of the population that's Muslim. Um, so I often will joke like, oh, I'm a cashew, like I'm half Jewish and <laughs> half Catholic. Um, However, I will say, like, one of the beautiful things is my, my dad never, like, forced any kind of, like, religious practice on me and my siblings. It was always, you know, here, here are some options, but, you know, there's more out there. You're very almost Unitarian, um, Universalist, where it's like, explore. Um, because my dad felt like spirituality, if you, that's something you even subscribe to, that was a personal thing. And so when people come to me and they say, well, how do you teach your children values if you don't use religion? I'm like, easy, <laughs> you know, like, you know, I, I, I don't wake up every day and choose to do something positive because I'm like, you see that old man, an old man being, you know, goddess Diana, like right. one point for me, like, no, like we do this because we can. And because we just understand that like, that's our place in the world um, like if you can do good, you can create value. Like it feels good. Like that, it, it can be selfish, but yeah, like you do good because you can, not because of some potential payout in the end. Like I'm totally okay with the potential that like when my time is up, you know, they're going to throw me in the backyard somewhere and I'll be pushing up daisies and that's it. And I'll be remembered by those who love me and they'll sing some songs and write some, you know, cute little posts on if social media is still a thing, if I make it that far. And if not, if there's more cool too, like I'm really okay either way. <laughs> and I get for some people that's really uncomfortable, sure. but that also plays into, you know, how I look at the world. I like what you were saying about um, like, how do you teach people values without religion? Well, I mean, I think I like to think about uh, other species of animals um, that are also very intelligent that have social structures and gregarious behaviors. I think about them a lot and how, you know, like, well, there's obviously some, uh, some nuances uh, considering other animals, like, they, you know, they have, they have, you know, uh, ways of caring for one another and have altruistic instincts and uh, um, yeah. And like there's normative behaviors in, in, the different animals and uh, and how they take care of and love for their family members, obviously. So like, there has to be a part of that um, that is, and they have ways of communication too. Right. Um, so there has to be some level of like innate, mm -hmm. like moral, uh, basic emotional uh, capacity to love and uh, be and want to be loved too mm -hmm. yeah um, and you know as far as I know animals other animals don't have their own religions and so like yeah religion is just you know it's it's it, it feeds into like the whole creationism and, and all that shit too but like you know 
they need that. Cool, because- like that helps you be a better person. But if you're using that as like only those who are in my club, right, are like the good ones. And I when I hear people say things like, well, how do you teach values without religion? What I hear is, well, how do you get people to comply without fear? That's what, that's what I hear, right? Like how, how do you control people's behavior without fear, <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. And, and it becomes, yeah, it becomes this sort of like what you're saying, the self-righteousness in, uh, in how, you know, we're making sense of reality and consciousness and right and which, wrong. Which comes all the way back to what we were originally talking about, too, in terms of like not being able to be wrong or, or corrected or being given feedback, right? Because what happens then if you build your whole, like, perception of the world on this this one piece of information and then that information gets disrupted right like for example so you know we would like to think that we are logical beings where if we're presented with information or truth that bumps up against what we've been held to be true like if we were presented with facts that counter that that we would be like, oh, okay, cool. A new thought, a new, you know, a, a fact that makes this one irrelevant. No, <laughs> we actually dig our heels more, even more in, right? And because we, we, we're we not actually as responsive to facts as we like to think we are, me included. I'm not, I mean, I tell, I tell my friends, well, they kind of point out to me that like, you're really bad at a lot of things. <laughs> and I'm bad at a lot of things because I try a lot of new things all the time like I suck at the guitar (laughs) but I'm gonna and I'm gonna suck for a while um because it's a new thing right uh but it's and I think about this when I'm gonna divvying up tasks with my team like I tell reporters when they ask to come out and interview our our crews you're not gonna I I can't promise you're gonna get our most well-spoken you know most eloquent team I'm whoever is next on the roster is going to get the opportunity because I, I believe that we we develop the more we use certain muscles the more effective we are at the thing right um certainly there are certain things that like some of us may be predisposed to drawing or singing or or instruments right? maybe it's maybe part of that is genetic but that doesn't mean we can't all learn those things it might take some of us a little bit more different type yep. of teaching but we can all learn anything all of um, our brains work differently exactly yeah. and, and that's another thing right unfortunately we, ha- we are all indoctrinated into certain school systems where you know educators are taught to teach a particular way and everyone just needs to fall in line with that everyone's then, held at the same standard yeah versus yeah. like you know taking things like neurodivergence into account um of which there are many different types of that yeah um, and no one should be punished for that. You know, they should be accommodated. And Absolutely. Rather than like, feeling like they need to accommodate the system. Yeah, um, like in the tech industry, they've gotten so much better at being inclusive and equitable around like neurodiversity because they're realizing that their traditional modes of interviewing people, right? Which you're, you're measuring for charm and like, yeah. would I want to go get a beer with this person after work? That's not actually the qualifications that they need to fulfill the role. And people oftentimes who have, you know, who are not neurotypical, so to speak, and so have some, some, some near, or who, well, we're all neuro, neurodiverse, but just in that spec, in, in that space, they're realizing that folks who may be on the spectrum or, or have other diversities neurologically are great at tasks that require, like coding or tasks oh, that yeah. require repetitive stuff, 
Whereas someone like me, I would be a terrible employee if I had to do the same thing every day. Like they'd be like, fire her immediately. <laughs> so right. why are we using the same method of interviewing for, for two very different skill sets that we're right. looking for? Exactly. Um, yeah. yeah. I agree. Like why, like people that have, uh, you know, uh, are on the autism spectrum are probably way better at doing certain, you know, things than it's I am. Proven. And yeah. it's like, so why are we, why are we stig like, why was that stigmatized in the first place? Why has it like always been treated as a problem that needs to be fixed? You know, and that's why people should not be supporting Autism Speaks, like because of that, the way that organization treats autism as a disease. Like, yeah, yeah, you know, it's, yeah. It's, it's like, no, let's, let's treat it as like, you know, it's, it's, it's just different, mm -hmm. but exactly. But like, yeah and uh, like ADD you know, and ADHD like I, folks who have like ADD and ADHD make amazing entrepreneurs <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. I, I've seen it a lot of my friends have been diagnosed with ADD and ADHD and because their their brains are just constantly coming up with solutions yeah. and like new ideas now yeah they might need to figure out ways of like tracking all of that and maybe having a partner or a friend or hiring someone to like you know support the parts that are not you know like naturally you know like that are they don't enjoy doing or that don't come naturally to them but to have this kind of perception that there's something wrong with you if you yeah it's I mean so my, my father is left-handed and you know this is a very minute example but there was a time literally where you know my dad's 80 so he remembers going to a catholic school right even though he was jewish um, because that was the only private school they had in Madison at the time in the 40s. Um, and like the, the nuns like slapping his hand with a ruler and forcing him to use his right hand because somehow they thought, well, like the devil has you if you're <laughs> your left hand. And now there's some research that I don't know, I haven't confirmed this, but a while back I remember reading that folks who are left-handed actually have slightly higher IQs than folks who are right. And I am right-handed, so I'm not saying that you know that I'm smart but but yeah and I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that this world right it's it's built typically for right-handed people um same thing with like accessibility like why don't we just automatically make our buildings and our our built environment accessible like folks like me who are whose bodies are enabled like <laughs> we'll be fine <laughs> right That's and all of us are one one potential incident away from being differently from having a disability so <laughs> you know, or from losing some mobility. So I, it, it's interesting that we do this. Oh, we'll just, we'll, we'll backtrack and throw in a ramp here, um, which I also see people doing with this whole, you know, issue around representation in, in businesses where they just think, we'll just sprinkle in some brown people and some women and maybe a gay guy and then yay, diversity. You know, it's like, it's not the seasoning to like stir fry that you forgot. You're like, oh, shoot, <laughs> let me... Like, yeah. no, we have to, like, disrupt the whole thing and build it from the ground up. A lot of things can't be reimagined. A lot of things can't be, like, reconfigured to, like, sometimes you just really got to start all over because the foundation is bad. Right. Yeah. Abolition. Yeah. Yeah. We, we could all benefit from thinking like abolitionists, I think. Oh, yeah. I In a lot of ways. I definitely try to. Um, yeah. And, um yeah, we like a lot of these things are interconnected, and I really enjoy it. You're awesome to talk to about all this kind of stuff. I'm really enjoying this. So, 
Cream City Conservation. Um, so where, like, I guess, like, how did the whole thing start? What made you want to uh, found your own organization? Yeah, so I love telling this story because it just goes to prove that, um, like, any 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 old idiot can <laughs> can do this because I think sometimes we think oh I would love to do what August is doing or what Ben's doing but I could never it's like trust me you can <laughs> um, so for me it was like complete accident right as I mentioned I watched half of my family you know be and still are like you know entrepreneurs and self-employed and that never seemed appealing to me um, but I also had a different concept of what jobs were. And so for to your, to your question earlier about how did I get involved with sustainability, it, it came down to recognizing that I was always very passionate about justice and anti-bias and anti-oppression as a mixed race black woman who kind of like had spent most of her life navigating all these different worlds, right? Like navigating Southeast Asia, navigating white America, navigating, you know, like black America. Um, and I'm yeah. always confused, like confused for being Dominican. So like, <laughs> I can get if I keep my mouth shut or if I speak Spanish, I can, you know, get access into the Latinx community too. However, um, when you so for me it was about justice, and so one of the ways I found to to do something about my concerns about access to safe green space and connect young people, especially young people of color the land in a way that was dignified and not extractive um, was through a, a national conservation program and this was the student conservation association and it was literally the dream job i never knew i wanted um i and this is where i i'm a big this is, i'm about to get really woo woo on you ben but i'm a big believer in in the law of attraction and in, in manifesting um the caveat here though is i, I will say no, no amount of i don't believe that I don't know if, if, if there's any amount of like positive thinking that's just gonna like poof, make yeah. you know I, like I, I, I question go away. In, <laughs> I do believe in it to a degree, but there's but not when it doesn't account for like class and oppression and stuff. Exactly. Like that. And systems that are very much so real and like produced yeah. So yeah, just I, I wanna you know, because sometimes some of some super positive like, oh law of attraction thing you you're yeah, suffering yeah. because it's your fault. I, I'm not saying that. <laughs> the new age to classist pipeline is real. Uh, it's, yes, yes, it's, it's yes. weird, but yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I will say this, not to get off on a tangent, I will say, though, that one thing I noticed with the um, the chanting of, of, you know, the, the very realities of, you know, like the I can't breathe movement, there there was something about that that didn't that didn't sit well with me because there was something about reaffirming I can't breathe I can't breathe I can't breathe and of course you know we're in the, in the middle of COVID and there's something that about that that I to me I realized or it felt like I don't know if that's something I want to affirm like I we need to draw attention to that but that's why I really appreciate things like um you know like Black Lives Matter it's affirming right like I am a man like you know like the words that are for affirming I I lean more towards um, because I, I do worry about, you know, like a lot of people may not know this, but the term abracadabra means I, what I speak, I create. So, um, so I, I try to be very careful with my words, <laughs> but anyway, um, it's back to the law of attraction thing. Um, I had actually, I had written down all of the components 
to a purposeful life. Mm -hmm. And also like what I would need to earn because I, to, to, to do that, because my parents were very concerned. They're like, you're taking all these nonprofit jobs. You're not making any money. Like, luckily I was able to, you know, I didn't have a lot of debt when I graduated school. I was able to, you know, I got a lot of scholarships and some grants. Um, but I, I also knew like, I probably was either going to go teach or work in a nonprofit. So I never anticipated making a lot of money. <laughs> um, but my dad, you know, was very concerned about like, you know, as any parent would be wanting their children to be successful. I had just, you know, I'd finished my, my gig with, you know, uh, with AmeriCorps and was working as a community educator uh, inside a community center at, near Berryland. And then I got introduced to Will Allen and was like a total, just like, ah, like I was, I thought that was so cool. I mean, later on, I realized like, still love Will Allen, but I was like, yeah, the guys are a little overcrowded, <laughs> you know, but, um, but again, right, baby in bathwater. Uh, but so I, I was coming to this moment in life where I always knew that like the paycheck was never going to be enough to like keep me in a space. And I, and, and I, I didn't want to be another one of those people that just like spent 40 plus hours a week doing something that they dreaded or, or, at, yeah. or also not excited about, right? Like we, sure, we all have off days where we're like, wow, this is rough, but I'm excited every day when I, when I work, you know, right. and we all deserve that for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Like work should not be like drudgery, I don't think. And now I'm not saying that everyone's job that buys their groceries needs to be their passion. I think that also gets a little, you know, like it's so like your passion can be unrelated to your job. Like that's totally okay. Because I think a lot of, especially younger people feel really guilty if they're working a job that like they wouldn't die for. And, and like, I don't know if we need to go that far. If you can, if they can match up, awesome. However, but you do want to, I do think that we deserve to be excited about what we're doing, um, at least half the time <laughs> we're working. Not just like, ooh, two more days before I don't have to come back here. Like, no, like that takes a toll on our, our health and well being. So I wrote down all of the components to what I would think would be a purposeful existence in, in work. Um, and I had written down, you know, like, I want to work with young people every day. I want to be in the community. I want to be in nature. I want to be able to, you know, make my own hours for the most part. I, I wanted to be the boss because, you know, as I don't have diagnosed ADD, but I wouldn't be surprised. Um, and I, I don't always subscribe to the, like, oh, you have to be in your desk at 9 a.m. It's like, well, why? Like, well, because, <laughs> you know, like, but if the work gets done, within this time period and I don't need to meet with it. Like that just seems like an unnecessary control like tactic. Um, like, and I don't really respond to that, which is maybe why I enjoy working with teenagers so much because <laughs> that also doesn't resonate with me. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, that rule doesn't make sense. Let's get rid of it. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I wrote down all of these things that I, that I wanted. I even like calculated, like here's how much I would need to earn to live comfortably. And put it away, it was in a little notebook. A few months later, um, a friend of mine was looking for a job and I, so I started searching um, and she's in the environmental field. And so I found this, this job with SBA, they sent it to her. And at the time she was living in Chicago and she thought, man, that does look really cool, but I don't know if I want to move to Milwaukee yet. Um, so I said, okay, well, so this job, I didn't know what it paid, but it said, you know, you'd be based in Milwaukee, running a conservation program with, you know, 50 teens 
Um, your boss would be based in DC. Yeah, I was like, oh, I get to go to DC. Like I, it just all seemed great. And I thought, you know what? Let me throw my name in the hat, even though I didn't know the difference between honeysuckle and buckthorn. Couldn't tell you what garlic mustard was at the time. Didn't even know there was a thing as invasive species. Right. Um, <laughs> I had no clue. <laughs> I knew I knew youth work though, and I and I knew youth development, and I understood you know the components that that would make that successful, um, and that the, the the attributes that were required of me to to support someone um, someone younger, you know, in their own development and in their own self actualization. So, anyways, I got a call to interview for that job, and um, you know, much to my surprise, they flew me out to DC for the second interview hired me on the spot and I remember asking them like why did you guys hire me because <laughs> I literally like, I have no environmental like no ecology background and they said you know we we've had three other people manage this program and they all had extensive environmental backgrounds but we realized halfway through the season they don't like young people <laughs> they actually don't like you don't, if you don't like kids if you don't like teenagers if you don't like people this is not the job for you um, and they realized that we can actually teach the environmental components. Like we can teach you how to build trail. We can teach you how to plant ID. Sure. The youth work aspect, we, we, we realized we need someone to come in the door with. And I was like, oh, okay. And so I managed that program for almost a decade. Never thought about leaving. Um, expanded it from 50 teens to 100 in my first year through partnerships. Um, like we added on a bicycle crew because the teens were concerned about, you know, our, the carbon emissions that we were generating through our, the vans we use to get to parks because a lot of our parks are not on bus lines. Um, and then, yeah, just doing a lot of innovative, cool stuff. And then, you know, as, as, as it goes with nonprofits, sometimes you're not always gonna be the flavor of the year. And our primary funder at the time was going through some, some rough, patches very publicly and said that they were going to go in a different direction, which meant they were no longer going to be able to support the Milwaukee and the Detroit program. And I didn't know this, of course, until I got called into our regional office in Chicago for, for what I thought was going to be a conversation about a race, which, by the way, I should mention that number that I put on my, my I guess you could call it my little, you know, list of vision, um, what they offered me was actually $1,000 less than the number I wrote down. Every every other component to that job I wanted was there. Oh, wow. And this has happened to me many times over in life, um, where I, I will make a list of like, here's how much revenue I need to earn for C4. And thinking like, this is probably a long shot, but I'm gonna write it down anyways. And like, and getting an alignment and thinking about what would it feel like to be able to like, earn that much revenue, knowing we're independent of grants and like to be able to employ X number of young people, you know, and just so, Anyway, um, so when they when they closed down the, their Midwest offices, you know, I, I knew I could get another job. I, I went to work for the Parks Department. I had offers from a lot of different environmental organizations who met me through working within that organization. So I was pretty lucky to have this built-in network of people who trusted me, who I trusted, um, and who were, you know, mission aligned. However, um, it, nothing was just nothing was very similar it was similar enough to what I was doing and I also realized that government unfortunately is where dreams and innovation go to die <laughs> and as much as I tried to bring some innovative projects like for example I was I was the community education manager or um, community engagement manager um, 
and I, I wanted to bring in a trails crew. They didn't have any money. So by this point, I was when I left when SDA closed down, I was getting offers from folks to that. Well, first it started with, can we meet for coffee? We've got we want to know, like, what kind of hiring practices you used and um, how are you able to like attract your staff and, you know, how, how what kind of like culturally responsive risk management policies or practices did you use for your teens when you sent them up north, like all those sorts of things. And I realized I can't keep meeting people for coffees and for lunches. Like I have my own life. I, I was like, I need to be smarter about this. And so I thought, you know, if I actually like charge for this and do like an actual workshop, because I was doing workshops for the SDA, um, for helping to prepare their crew leaders to navigate challenging conversations about race in the field, because that also didn't exist prior. Um, I said, you know, the emotional safety of our young people is just as important as their physical safety. But, and we're not, we're doing our leaders a disservice by not giving them at least some tools to navigate. We don't expect people to be perfect. But so, yeah, so I started teaching those same things um, locally. And then I used some of the profits from that work to, um, to pay some of our former SDA crew members to do work on public land. Um, and so it just kind of, it was never meant to be this full-time thing. Um, in fact, one fee-for-service project we got, which kind of started a lot of it, was with River Revitalization. They had written the SDA into a grant. And this was after I'd already driven all of our tools to, to Chicago's storage room and handed in my laptop and all that. Got a call saying, like, could we, you know, could you bring SDA back just for a season? So I called up SDA and gave them the information and they said, yeah, no, we'll pass. And so I said, well, what if I were to take it on? And they were like, if you want, <laughs> you know, but we're going in a different direction. Um, and the whole reason I, that I, I even thought about doing it myself is that the folks at RRF were like, well, we've been working with you anyways. Like you've got the connections with the teens, with the crew. Like, could you just run a crew on the side for a few weeks? And a few weeks turned into a few months and a few months turned into a few years. And, the, and I realized that the more workshops that I was doing, um, I could then use that money to pay the teens and to buy boots for anybody that didn't have boots or work gloves and things like that. Um, and I didn't know what to charge at all. I, th I think the first workshop I did for Urban Ecology Center, I charged, I think, $250 for a four hour workshop. Right now, like I don't have any workshops that are under like a thousand seven hundred, right? Um, but again, like I didn't know anything about business. I, I knew about the concept of social enterprise, and I knew that I wanted to use the profits for social good. And I was lucky that I, through working through the parks department, I could buy my groceries with with that money and funnel all the money into uh, the core program. But then it's the, the demand for the work became so great that I eventually had to resign from the parks. It, it was, it, I realized when I started adding up the numbers, I could replace my salary and still be able to pay young folks to do work on public land. Yeah. And that was the day where I was like, oh, okay. Now, I, I will not say that that, that that shift did not, that it was smooth or that I didn't have sacrifices along the way. Um, in fact, I will tell you, starting a business, let alone, especially a social enterprise, um, it, it will cost you. It, but I think that the cost is worth it. Um, for me, it meant for, for a few years, I didn't really see friends. I eat 
lived and breathed social entrepreneur social entrepreneurship um and to and i also you know it it cost me you know being able to have children um it cost me my marriage right because i was very tunnel vision into this work to the point where i I recall my ex-husband saying well like you already have your baby like you've got this you know your business um like what do i have um but and I'm not saying everybody's story is going to be like that. Sometimes you're just not equally yoked. And yeah. a lot of times, like, people in the religious community will, will talk about being equally yoked. And I realized that for me, being equally yoked means that I have to have, I need to be surrounded by friends and, and, and significant others who also believe that we are responsible for creating value in the world um and whatever means that is and and at the very least we're responsible for doing the least amount of harm (laughs) um and 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 if someone isn't if that's not a priority like that value creation in the same manner that you think it's it is then then it's probably not a match yeah but so yeah so so i basically took everything i had learned and developed through working with the sba started my own thing and figured out how to run it in a manner that wasn't dependent on grants because so many of my you know, clients at the time were other environmental nonprofits and it didn't make sense for us to be going after the same EPA grants or in the, going after the same little grant with Greater Milwaukee Foundation or, or United Way. Um, and so here we are we're in our fifth year. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of that. Uh, that is, <laughs> it does sound like a, um, yeah, you know, you really seeing the value of the role that not only you had, but of the work you were doing. And when, you know, when it's unfortunately like things collapse and happen uh, from point of your, your superiors or the organizations you're involved with, like, yeah. but, but your passion remains and your, your, your will to, um, as you keep saying, uh, mm-hmm. bring value into the world and in this case bring value into the community through environmental sustainability um, and youth empowerment then what can you do you took it in your own hands Mm -hmm. and uh, that's bold especially when yeah like you don't always have like you know the specializations right away and you Mm -hmm. kind of have to learn as you go along but Mm -hmm. What you did know already uh, definitely did suit you in terms of like you know your like sociological perspectives and stuff like that and uh yeah. ultimately that helped you uh pick up the rest of the pieces pretty quickly um and yeah. awesome you should be very proud of yourself yeah. thank um, you <laughs> you're welcome you know, thank you thank you i you know i I, I knew that I could solve the problems that were being presented to me. I, I didn't know how to build a, a business around it. And so like, essentially we're, we're, we're flying the plane as, as we are, we're building it. Um, and in some ways that, that's still the case. I, you know, I, I truly believe that those who are impacted by the work should be making the decisions, at least contributing to how the decisions are made. And so right now my team and I are in the middle of, um, creating a new policy structure around paid sick time and, um, you know, our absentee, you know, uh, uh, you know, practices and, and how we navigate that. Um, and I, because I, I do think like having input from, from multiple, you know, angles is really valuable. 
what I also know though is that everything is figure outable. <laughs> and you know, sometimes the the value um, or the, or the benefit is actually just the pure ignorance of not knowing it's not supposed to be done, <laughs> right? Like a lot of, uh, there are a lot of things that I have like navigated. I didn't realize were a new thing. Like for example, I didn't realize I was doing anything unique in terms of my recruitment tactics or retention tactics. Um, when people used to ask me like, well, where do you find all your careers from? I was like, actually Capoeira meets. <laughs> you know? like, I'm like, really? Like, yeah, Capoeira meets. Like, I, would, I mean, I used to have conversations with people, spoken word, like, events when that was a thing. Um, you know, I'm like, I go to a lot of book clubs. And they're like, oh, we, we just advertise on the core network. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that, then that's probably why you're getting the, the candidates you're getting. Like, they're just, yeah, they're qualified, but you're not, they're not going to be folks who have any youth work experience or are going to live in the same neighborhoods as the youth you're working with. Um, yeah. Because I had that same philosophy of SDA where I'm like, I, I can teach you how to plant a tree, but you need, I need you to, you know, have some competence around navigating race issues and understand a little bit what that's like. Um, you, you can't do like the background work for them, the, the unpack their own baggage, like mm -hmm. that is something they have to meet you there with. Yeah. So you want to talk a little bit about the programs that Cream City Conservation is currently working on and or what, what you have currently have going on yeah, right now? Yeah, sure. So um, from the core program side, we are working with Milwaukee Metropolitan Sewerage District, the MMSD, to um, we have two different programs. Uh, one is our ambassadors program. It's part of the Fresh Coast um, Guardians um, umbrella uh, program. And the, the ambassadors are teenagers 17 to about 20 uh, who are learning about green infrastructure, careers in water. Um, so they do a lot of work in on uh, MMSC funded green infrastructure sites. So they learn like, what is the difference between gray infrastructure and green infrastructure? And what happens when I flush my toilet? <laughs> you know, where does that water go? Um, they were learning about water reclamation. Uh, and you know the careers that are associated and then the, the tracks that they would need to pursue if they wanted a career in that. So our conservation program uh, works on trail, uh, doing invasive species removal in the parks, uh, and they'll be a, uh, doing combo service with um, some urban agriculture efforts as well. We, in the past, we had our, a separate urban agriculture crew um, that would grow produce from seed at various growing sites like Vincent High School, Mary Ryan's uh, Boys and Girls Club Center in Sherman Park, um, and as well as UWM Sandberg Gardens. So we'll be growing at all of those sites again this year, except for um, Vincent High School. Uh, in the past, the students have worked with local chefs to design salads, uh, and then they would sell them at Brewer Games on Sundays. But this year, we're going to be donating the produce to um, like some grassroots organizations that are addressing hunger in Milwaukee instead. Um, we may have the, the crews do some small like farmer's market type thing so they can really get the experience of how growing your own food is very similar to printing your own money. <laughs> um, but for the most part, the produce will be donated. Um, and then, yeah. And so then we also have the Fresh Start program which is new this year. Uh, that is intended, it, it's designed to support um, individuals who are returning home after experiencing incarceration 
as well as individuals who are looking for a career change. Uh, so that's more of older adults, so 21 and above, um, but most of our adults, I would say, in that program now are probably around in their 30s, you know, mid-30s or so. And um, they are going to be completing the um, National Green Infrastructure Certification Program. They also will be trained on OSHA 30, forklift. Um, essentially, we want to get them all of the certifications and experience they would need to be undeniably qualified for at least an entry-level position in a water career. And MMSD has been really invested in diversifying the water sector from its vantage point and the, and the circle of influence that it has. Uh, they've since eliminated the, um, uh, the question about um, a, um, any experience with you know, um, incarceration off of their employment um, paperwork. I'm That's sure there's still, yeah, I'm, it's great. I mean, I think there's still some work that needs to be done collectively about educating HR professionals um, who are always very um, risk averse, right? And, and their main focus is protecting the institution um, rather than, you know, cultivating, you know, belonging amongst people. But I think we're going to see that cultural shift happen more and more too um, as, we, as we go forward as a collective. So yeah, so we've got the Fresh Start program, the Ambassadors, which is now entering its third year, uh, the Conservation Crews, this is entering their, their fifth year, um, and we'll see where we'll see where we go. So we'll have five or sorry, three crews this season, um, all between ten and twenty members each. Got a really good team of leaders this year. And then from the consulting side, we actually are we're fully booked for the rest of the year with clients, um, but we are doing a cohort model starting in January 2022 for smaller organizations. Um, you know, folks who are under 50 members or 50 staff. Uh, to help make this work more accessible for them. Ideally, institutions like the DNR, who are also clients of mine, Forest Service, things like that, that they, they will create their own internal, you know, core type programs to help foster and funnel in talent. Because a lot of these institutions, I don't think they really know where they're going to get their talent from in the, when, when, you know, the next six years or so come about and 40% of their staff retires especially in government. So I think, you know, we really, we're already behind the mark, but I, I'm, I know a lot of folks are thinking about that now. So I, my hope is that more and more of these entities can start thinking about succession planning and how they can, you know, funnel folks into their organizations now. Um, sure. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Cool. Yeah. So, um, and then, so I have two more questions for you. Yeah. Uh, one of them is uh, so how all this said what you just talked about um, how can folks get involved slash support cream city conservation yeah um well tell tell your friends and family about us uh if you have friends and family who work in environmental industries or we also have worked with some ad agencies we've worked with some tech companies it's not our primary focus but you know systems of oppression operate the same <laughs> um but uh, our our Priorities are, of course, with environmental entities. Um, also, I do, uh, if they would like to come and volunteer, we have, we can connect them to service days. We are not a nonprofit, so we can't accept donations, uh, but we can connect them to partners that would like to work with us who are in need of donations so that they can work with us. So we're happy to connect folks that way. Um, yeah, I would say, you know, just, I guess one thing that could is really helpful is really, um, 
putting some positive pressure on on you know institutions, organizations, places of work, schools, and asking them like, what are you doing in terms of addressing equity in your in your organization, in your company? Um, I there was a group of uh, new teachers that I was speaking to in a keynote a few weeks ago, and and one of the questions I got was, you know, what's something I should be looking for as an educator when I'm considering what school system to work for? And my answer to them was, you know. A great question in an interview could be, have, have the words white supremacy ever been uttered by a person in leadership, <laughs> right? What is, the, what is the practice for supporting, and is there a practice for supporting educators who you know, utilize anti-oppression and anti-bias uh, literature in, yeah. in, you know, in, in the curriculum? What is, what is the practice in supporting those teachers when there's pushback from, from parents? Right, like these are some of the things we, and we, we really should be asking this with any company, right? Like, what is your, what is your, you know, what, what's your practice on supporting employees of color, employees who have been historically marginalized? Um, and if that question makes them uncomfortable, well, then there's your answer. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, do they have, um, yeah, the, do they care about uprooting oppression mm -hmm. as yeah. much as they care about, you know, serving the environment and serving their community because mm -hmm. to all that needs needs to go in tandem with one another otherwise you're merely you know uh addressing symptoms you're not addressing mm -hmm. root causes absolutely, absolutely. Uh, yeah, then, yeah my last question is uh this sort of just uh, kind of interested in something you mentioned um what you've been uh removing you know what what's uh and how have you been removing it yeah, so we use mostly hand tools with our with invasive species. So we'll use loppers, hand saws, pulling. Um, there's a lot of garlic mustard at Lake Park. Um, buckthorn is also a really huge issue. We're we're we really are in a crisis in terms of addressing the tree canopy with all of our ash trees dying out. Like, I mean, the next generation are they're not going to know ash trees. They're they're they're, they're all going to be gone. Um, unfortunately, thanks to Emerald Ashbor. Uh, but that means that we're also going to need to replace a whole bunch of the tree canopy. Um, so so we're doing a, we do a lot of tree plantings with different friends groups of the park. But I would say most of the invasive species will be honeysuckle, buckthorn, um, uh, black locust. Uh, there's quite a few green, uh, green infrastructure type bioswales that are um, along the lakefront, um, South Shore, actually our crew's out at South Shore today, um, working on some of the sites there, doing some maintenance. So those are typically the, the areas that we work in. We, some areas um, do require that folks have to put herbicide down. Um, many organizations are moving away from that and trying to find other methods because it's not without risk, of course. Um, so, we do support our team members getting certified in herbicide application, but it's not a requirement um, because especially places like MMSD are banning the use of it, which is great. Um, but yeah, unfortunately with a lot of these invasive species, you know, if you don't treat it, it actually becomes worse. <laughs> so um, yeah, so it's a tricky, uh, tricky thing, but there's ways to, to keep the utilization of herbicides very minima, minimal. Um, rather than spraying, like actually using daubers instead of just <laughs> a bag bag. Um, but yeah, most of it's going to be garlic mustard as well. I think I mentioned that. 
So those are some of the invasives that we deal with. Oh, yeah. yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. I know starlings are a big one too. Um, mm. I'm a bird guy, so. Okay, uh, yeah. Yeah, starlings are bastards. Okay, uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I've tried uh, to get into bird watching. I am not patient enough. <laughs> I have some core members who love it. And they're like, what's wrong with August? You don't like trying to find things you can't see? <laughs> like, yeah, I grew up with it. So okay. it's, yeah, I think it's fun, but I, it does take some patience. Um, mm -hmm. Does Cream City Conservation have a physical location? Yeah, so our, our offices are technically inside of Escuela Verde, next to the Urban Ecology Center in Menominee Valley. But we are almost never there. We're always in the field. Um, and for a, quite a few years, I was the only full-time employee. We now have a project coordinator. Um, so we most of us are all remote right now. We try to reduce, you know, like unnecessary travel. I think the pandemic has shown us that we, uh, you know, we can get our work done from anywhere uh, for most of us. But uh, yeah, so our offices technically are inside of Escuela Verde on Pier oh. Street there, yeah, which is a great place for us to be. They're amazing partners. Um, in fact, when we, uh, back in the day when we had the bicycle crew, we would barter, uh, they would, we would let them use our tools for their service projects, and then we would borrow their bicycles. So uh, it's also a great place to recruit um, core members because these are students who are already invested in environmental justice because it's a huge, it's, it's foundational to their curriculum. Oh. Uh, so yeah, great folks over there, yeah. Right on, shout out to them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you're, oh, yeah. we're right in the middle in the middle of like the bike fed too, and like UEC, so it's it's oh. a great marriage. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, right on. Uh, love this. Uh, this is awesome, August. I really appreciate you coming on the show today to talk all about not only Cream City conservation and you know like uh, what you're uh, involved with in the community, but also how you're applying it to a very like. Um, you're very meta about it. I feel like you know you're you're very aware of the 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 whole concept of impact from a small scale and how that ripples to a large scale and how like how important it is to be intentional with mm -hmm. not only every like where you are and like what spaces you occupy, but also like why you do what you do and um, how you hope to make the world a better place just by, um, you know, from both on both micro levels and macro levels. Mm -hmm. um, and you do that, you know, that that falls in tandem with your traveling and it falls in tandem with, um, you know, your quest for justice and the, having those difficult conversations. But it definitely uh, suits well right at home, too, with, you know, simple things like, you know, cleaning, keeping our um, environment clean is uh it's connected to the fight against racism and the fight against oppression and i think the, the way you you marry those things um into your uh mission is pretty awesome uh yeah. and it, it's a uh, very yeah it's very uh you're doing it in a very niche way and i, and I admire <laughs> it a lot so yeah i for it to be so, so accidental yeah <laughs> working out okay i i will say though like the the end goal is to to solve right for the issue and then like dissolve right like which is also a really tricky thing right to, to start a business with the intention of like ending it right, <laughs> right? like 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 the ideal situation the ideal scenario would be like oh look at that we do, the environmental industry doesn't have a need for this anymore it's all internal they've got it they figured it out and and 
when we look at our prison system, for example, right, like actually the, the representation, the disparity of representation is actually, it's, the gaps are closing a bit now. So, so we do know that like, in some cases, reform can, can support. Many cases, it requires abolition, uh, at least abolition of the current thinking that we use. But yeah, I, I mean, like none of, as Audre Lorde says, right? Like we don't live one-dimensional lives, and so we, th this work can't be one-dimensional. We can't succumb to individualism. You know, we have to embrace the collective consciousness that you know really not only connects like all of our all of us together in like a metaphysical way, you know, with, like the energies and stuff like that, but also very much in how it connects us in practical ways too. how we treat our environment and how we treat each other. You know, uh, it really like it, it does play out on a large scale. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a mirror, absolutely. Yeah, mm -hmm. so on our way out, I ask everyone the same two questions. The first one is, August, what keeps you up at night? <laughs> oh. There's a lot of things that keep me up at night. <laughs> yeah. A lot of things. Um, I think just taking up space and not not leaving anything behind. It I guess would be an all-encompassing answer. Like not living a life that had much meaning. Yeah. And yep. yeah, I don't want to just take up space. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I feel that way too. Yeah. Um, Imposter syndrome is a bitch, though. I will say that yeah. they yeah. can make they can make that a perpetual uh, resistance to that feeling. Um, the other question is, uh, what puts you to sleep? Mm. Being reminded that I'm not alone in this work, and knowing that, like, as long as I stay patiently persistent. Um, that that we will see change like the, the i often refer to it as the, that knowing that there's a collective audacity in the world that we can build better we can be better we can have better and that there will be a day where our identities don't determine who gets to thrive um yeah i would say that the acknowledgement of the collective audacity for justice <laughs> puts me exactly. to sleep. yeah the fight to you know where how you look, how you identify, or how much money you have won't be factors in like your self-actualization. Mm -hmm. uh, until mm -hmm. we reach that, we've got a lot of work to do, but do. I'm glad we could talk about that work today. So thank you once again, August, for being here. Thanks so much for having me, Ben. <laughs> Super welcome. Uh, everyone watching, uh, be conscious of the space you're taking up, be intentional with, uh, how you treat that space and check out cream city conservation i'll be tagging the link to their website thanks for watching mr nice guy we will see you next time